Hello you, tuning in to Psychomedy. It's Rafaela here from ThreadUp. ThreadUp brings exciting new changes to its services in direct response to what we learned while supporting comedians and creatives through the crisis with their mental health and including those who lost their income. Check it out at threadup.co.uk and get in touch to arrange your therapy that supports creativity. Welcome to Psychomedy. I'm Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a subject I've been studying for 25 years and a quarter of a century of studying the fascinating way our minds work on and off stage alongside being stand-up for the last 10 years has led me here today discussing the psychology of comedy with today's very special guest, the brilliant Neil Malarkey. Hello, thank you very much. Nathan, part of my degree was in psychology, but I didn't do it properly like you, BSc type. You probably did... um real psychological experiments didn't you i just read books and then pretended that the data was reliable <laughs> uh, well we all pretended at university to learn i think i think uh, i like you are probably spending most of my time doing artistic endeavors um well maybe i speak for myself but um i was certainly concentrating more on the arts rather than my degree i think yes i regret it now because there were some really good lectures that i've slept through in my bed <laughs> anyway yes so as covid restrictions take hold yet again in london neil joins me on zoom so how have you coped how have you coped mentally without the buzz of the of the comedy store has your other work replaced that to a certain extent how have you been mentally during this time i realized some time ago that i was extraordinarily fortunate hmm. i don't get too stressed it's short-term stress about have i finished that thing should i have said that Will it be all right for my children? But I sort of generally believe in a positive vibe that bad things happen and we're going to learn from them and we'll get over them. And uh, that's how I approach it. And I can see many other people who don't have that. And who knows why that is. Uh, with two children, you realise that nature and nurture are very confused, that my children are very different. I've got two brothers. I'm very different from them. So. Uh, how much is just what happened in the DNA? How much is training? How much is have I consciously done? I don't know. I must say I was very lucky in life early on to be involved with improv comedy. Improv theatre, which sort of says you treat things that happen, people say, as an offer. An offer to build the scene, to create the next part of the story. And I found that was something I do look at my own life every now and again. Well, all right, what, what is that I'm doing that is is going to lead to the next thing that's good instead of saying uh, periods of unemployment where i thought well, why aren't i getting more work and i'm thinking then i switch and say well isn't it great i don't have to wait till i'm 60 or 65 to retire <laughs> um and i sort of i could do that i could go to the gym i could hang out and I, I i i found out probably when i was in my 30s that the minimum level of material comfort i needed was can i afford can i afford smoked salmon <laughs> and a taxi if I really need one 
And I got there, you know, at that point I had a mortgage and, and I was fortunate. And I, first of all, I know many performers now don't get paid as well as I did because you could do radio and you got quite good money from doing clubs. And also in London, you could buy a flat for less than £300,000. <laughs> so um, to answer your question truthfully, I feel that I'm blessed with my mental health. I don't go through darkness. I go through frustration. Uh, I know people who suffer from depression and I don't want to belittle that because it's it's physical. It's not just kind of having a bad day because people who would have external, shall we say, positive vibes in terms of material family relationships whatever still experience depression so i don't really um know how they cope with it because i people have said i just couldn't get out of bed for four months yeah. uh and that's that's different from feeling a bit sad that's something chemical physical so yeah uh, i i'm grateful but learning mm, yeah well i've heard i've heard you talk elsewhere about how learning to improvise is incredibly powerful for your mental health and it's so it's so interesting looking at it that way because I, I i was at i was at a low point in my personal life a few years ago and i was just looking to do something different i wasn't really thinking about mental health i was just looking to do something different apart from stand-up so i started training with the free association and then with showstoppers and um and it totally transformed my my way of thinking you know although I was a stand-up as I say you know known for creating lots of different things every year it was various things of uh, of improvisation that you have talked about working as a team and particularly this vulnerability and failing making yourself vulnerable and being okay with that which was so powerful and as you say I think perhaps we need to embrace or it's good to embrace these moments of vulnerability now and over the next few months when we're feeling anxious and vulnerable and scared absolutely one of my heroes is brene brown um brene spelt like Rene, but with a b she's a social worker professor done lots of research written fantastic books and her whole thesis is really about vulnerability she did go through some sort of breakdown and vulnerability feels like we shouldn't allow it in western discourse sounds like weakness sounds like bad mm. and she's actually saying it's acknowledging that you're human in many ways and it's for her it's the source of creativity it's the source of leadership and it it doesn't sit well perhaps with our culture which values the alpha the alpha male the outgoing loud confident person who by the way i've met them they're not <laughs> underneath underneath there's all sorts of doubt going on which they may or may not be covering up badly or well vulnerability is important and i think um i found some research which said that the children the, the stories that ch children hear from their parents will affect their mental well-being so you can tell your child a story okay when i was young or last week a bad thing happened to me something went wrong disappointment strange thing whatever and the world is bad. That's just an example of why the world is bad. You can tell them the same story, the same facts. And your editorial is, you know what? I still came through it. And because of that, I've always done X or I never do Y or I learned some lesson. Mm. And it's the same fact. It's just how we editorialize it. And there's another guy called Steve Peters, who has helped sports teams and cycling teams. Yeah. And he, he talks about the chimp paradox. Basically, there's three parts of us. It's an easy model, which is great. 
there's the chimp, which is the one who wants food and power and sex. <laughs> and there's the computer, which sort of remembers stuff. And then there's a the human being that we think we all are, but actually the chimp jumps in straight away. When somebody's angry, the chimp is running the story. Then 10 minutes later, the human says, why did I do that? So he says, you have to train your computer. So tell your computer, bad things will happen. Deal with it. Bad things will happen. The world is unfair and it's unfair for all of us. But I notice myself, my chimp takes over the red mist, whatever it is, and I say things that I wish I hadn't. And I see people doing that as well. And none of us is a monk, uh, apart from monks and the Dalai Lama. And the, when you do meet somebody who has managed their chimp, because the whole point is the chimp never leaves you, just how do you manage her or him? Uh, that's sort of, uh, in, in a way, how do we cope with deep emotion? justifiable or not or the quick anger yeah i think i think it is very i mean that's one of the main things i took from improvisation as well because it is very different i don't know how much hanging out in stand-up dressing rooms you've done rather than improvising dressing rooms but uh, it is very different i mean obviously by the very nature of it it's a team game you're relying on each other you're listening to each other you're you're vulnerable in front of one another. And in a stand-up dressing room, it's about, I think the chimps are very much there in the, in the, <laughs> in the, in the stand-up dressing room. Well, I, I would say, it was, I don't know if you've ever heard of the old comedy store. And, and I think we left there last year. I think it's 23 years that the old mm. comedy store, 200 seats are much smaller than the one now, the other side of Leicester Square. And there was a, a room at the back, which was a, a public bar, but it was that's where, that's where it happened. It was after we'd done our set, we could all relax we could giggle with each other. We could tease each other. The dressing room was so small, there was no toilet. So you were there and suddenly Joe Brand would say, I need to use the toilet. And there was a sink. So she was sitting on the sink. We all waited <laughs> or turned the other way. Um, that kind of camaraderie uh, is real. Yes, before a show, we might all be a bit on edge, but it's lovely to, to sort of meet somebody who has seen what you've done. Or as you come off stage, there's somebody you know and she or he is just smiling. Yeah, yeah, that was great. And that affirmation is, is something, it doesn't mean we ignore the audience at all. We love the sound of their laughter, but there's also just that shared admiration of, of different people's work. And uh, just on the psychological point of view, a lot of people come and say, uh, that was a tough time for me. And I used to come to the comedy store and it raised my spirits. Um, I know I'm always guaranteed an easy belly laugh. What, what I mean by that is it's, 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 we're not... Our main thing is vulnerability, actually, dare I say. The main joke is us not knowing what the other person's going to say or yeah. us saying something that, oh, dear, did I really say that? And embracing that. That's, mm. the, that's the joy of improv. And uh, uh, it's hard to explain that to anybody who's never seen it because I'd never seen it until I was in one. Mm. A friend of mine went to see a show at Edinburgh, Omelette Broadcasting, with Jim Sweeney and Steve Steen. And said, oh, they were making it up as they went. No, 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 no. They have to write comedy, surely. And sketches have to be rehearsed and rewritten. And no. And it opened my eyes to something wonderful, which has been a huge part of my life. Yeah, well, let's talk about your route into the comedy store plays. I mean, we've mentioned university and going to Cambridge. I did want to go to Cambridge for a very particular reason, which was the Cambridge Footlights. Mm. Monty Python, Peter Cook, The Goodies. The goodies. I love the goodies. And they all came from Cambridge. Um, my father had gone to Cambridge on a state scholarship because he was an orphan. My mother went to Homerton, which is the teacher training school. That's how they met. So, so it was sort of in my awareness 
but I'd been quite happy to go to another university, which may have been the case. Um, mm. However, then I wanted to be in the footlights. So I go and turn up. And in my first term, I fail 13 auditions. I should have realized by that stage that I can't act. The only <laughs> one I got was the footlights where you write your own material. So mm. there was these two scary young men who, if you could imagine Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie at the age of 20 or whatever, <laughs> they haven't really changed that much. Fair, tall, confident public school boys. Mm. And I was a grammar school boy, just to give you a slight insight. But it was yeah. just kind of, they seemed so established and so confident and they were so funny and they wrote stuff. I'd never written anything. Mm. And uh, plays at Cambridge, they were, they were, pupils what a students directing plays i was I, I couldn't believe it hugh laurie was directing the pantomime yeah. and i got a recall and uh, the only recall i got was to, to be in the pantomime and I, there was clearly a character they were aiming for that i might play and I, okay go on i've got the recall um and then i went to the they put up a list <laughs> it's very painful and hugh laurie said i'm sorry you haven't made it we had to give your part to somebody else and that part was played by somebody called stephen fry so uh, what it did mean that, that I was on their radar and then you do these concerts, smoker, smokers, I don't know why, smoking concerts, heaven don't know why it's called that. But you have yeah. to write a sketch, perform it for them on a Tuesday afternoon. If they like it, you do it Wednesday evening in front of an audience. And I got to be in all of those and I they, they, come and be on the committee. So I was on the committee with Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson. Um, and then I got to be in the pantomime, which... Tony Slattery was in. So we felt like we were doing great things. And then on the other side, I was doing social psychology, which was, and sociology. So people, nonverbal communication, personality, attitudes, nice. prejudice, uh, childhood development, uh, brilliant stuff. And my my big disappointment really is in myself that I didn't work harder at that, but I was just too busy. I got to be president of Footlights. Oh. I had to direct the show, uh, the panto and then the, get somebody to direct the, uh, the the thing that goes on tour but it got yeah. me to go to edinburgh uh, it got me to go to australia and i got my equity card which mattered in those days and it gave me the confidence that i could do this as a job and my father said in my third year you want to do this as a job don't you yes i do dad and he said <laughs> go for it he'd go for it um okay. so and then uh, very soon a couple of years i met mike myers selling tickets for a show I was in, he'd heard of Footlights. He saw that on the poster, X Cambridge Footlights, and he made me laugh. Yes, I I heard you talking about that in another in another yeah. podcast. How you met and gosh, you've done your research. That he was selling tickets. Oh yeah, I mean it's uh, yeah, I mean firstly great that you can use your you've used your psychology now over the last kind of twenty years doing this kind of you know more business side of your career, and of course psychology and improvisation is great as well. But yeah, going back to those days, one of the interesting things about you at that time, I think, is you were working. Well, you were president, and Nick Hancock was on your. On the roster of people there, and but you were and you were in a double act with Nick, I believe, Hancock and Malarkey, um, yes. and then you were in a double act with Tony Hawks, I believe, and then, as you say, with Mike, um, perhaps your most famous double act, um, Malarkey and Myers, I guess, um, on TV and um, storming the Edinburgh Fringe. Was there anything particularly back then in terms of comedy and being in a double act that you? Uh, that you wanted, you know, you were drawn towards being in a double act. Was that, is that the sum total of your double acts or were there more? It's, uh, <laughs> I, I think, I think you possibly have the most, you know, glorious alumni of double acts of, <laughs> of any comedian, don't you really? Uh, well, thank you very much. Uh, yes, I, I suppose I did do a bit of stand up 
to begin with to try and see if I could do it. And mm. it feels just too lonely. I, I Just going to the gig, mm. uh, being on stage on your own and going home on your own. So um, Mike was selling tickets for a show I was in and he's, I said, what are you doing? And he talked about Second City and I'd heard of Second City from North America where lots of people have gone to Saturday Night Live and I love the Blues Brothers. So I said, oh, well, let's, I'll take you to see some stuff. We went to Jongleurs uh, and, we, and he made me laugh. He did lots of funny things in the street and in mm. the car. Let's, let's have a go. Let's do an open spot. We did an open spot. Um, eventually got a paid gig. We were very different from anywhere else, doing sketches, really, quite physical stuff, quite cartoony, very different from the uh, the type of material that was going around. So people did like it. Other comedians were happy to laugh at us because we weren't on their territory at all. Mm. Um, and so that's sort of how the Comedy Store players started. Kit Hollerback and Paul Merton and Dave Cohen were doing a show in 1985 at the same venue as us. And Kit had done a lot of improv in California, not least with Robin Williams, I think. And so she was saying, let's do something at the Comedy Store. Mike, you've done Second City, let's do that. So that's how the Comedy Store players started. Yeah. In 1985, before you were even born, Nathan, um, no, nobody had heard of improv, really. <laughs> So we called it Comedy To Go, the Comedy Store Players. So that kind of gave it a bit of a uh, an identity. Gradually, gradually, we got an audience. Whose Line Is It Anyway made it much more palatable. Yeah. Yeah. They understood what improv was. Oh, right. And they'd seen Josie Lawrence. They'd seen Paul Merton. They'd seen Richard Franch. And so they understood what it was by that stage. Yeah. I mean... Going back just quickly, if I may, to the to, to the double acts, because I think I think I think it's quite interesting. I, mean, I talked to Trevor Simon on this podcast. Ah. There, there's a name drop, Trevor Simon. Yes. Um, talked talked with them on the on the hundredth episode of Psychomedy. Who worked together for many years, and their relationship is all almost you know symbiotic and, and still is. Particularly the, the Mike Myers relationship. Was it hard at all when because he, as you say, went back to Canada and Second City? Was that a hard time at all losing that? comedy partner and then obviously you've had huge success in your own right but seeing his success in a different way in subsequent years it's a good question initially it was oh that's a shame because we sort of built up a head of steam people loved us uh and um so we kind of had created something and then we it stopped mm. i was lucky though because i'd already done a, a few shows with nick hancock so i could fulfill the engagements that um, we couldn't do because Mike had to go back to Canada to be at the main Toronto stage and to be near his father. Yeah. Uh, so that's why he left. But we came back to do Edinburgh, which we triumphed at. And it was kind of, it's OK, I'm, I'm doing my own thing. I've got the Comedy Store players. And I had Nick as well, uh, mm. who had been my friend at Cambridge. And we were, we had a, a show and it was fairly easy just to even just say, well, Nick can't come, but Mike can with a completely different act. Yeah. Uh, but there was also the sense of we'd carry on. So that first winter I went over, we did our show in Toronto. And then a, cut, a few years later, after Wayne was doing really well, his character Wayne on Saturday Night Live, we did our show in yeah. Toronto for a week. So there was a sense of it's, it's, never, it's not really finished. And yeah. Mike did everything he could to encourage Lorne Michaels, who's the executive producer of Saturday Night Live, to meet me. Yeah. He often comes to stay in London didn't get to meet him but I left some scripts and Mike said you must have my partner Neil come and write on the show I came and visited him in New York um I would accompany him occasionally when he did Johnny Carson so I was still there uh in his heart dare I say and we're still friends oh. the thing is when people ask the question how do you feel about this guy being so successful well I knew what he was like <laughs> so 
he was already brilliant. He'd already had quite a lot of success in Toronto before I met him. Oh. So he was on a path that in hindsight was obvious, whereas it wasn't just two schmucks hanging out. It was somebody who was extremely talented and uh, had done quite a lot of acting as, as a as a child, as a juvenile, had done commercial stuff. And his character Wayne was quite a hit already in Toronto. So oh. I wasn't thinking uh, anything amiss, really, uh, combined with the fact that we would we were going to do stuff together. So we would. He, he's often ringing me up. Uh, I've got this idea. Can you help me? Uh, what do you think of this? I'm coming to England. Let's work on this. Uh, let me send you a script. So he sent me Austin Powers, for example, oh. first. And I said, this is great. This is fantastic. You should, this is what you should really use, do you think? It's, it's, <laughs> uh, well, he wasn't sure because he'd written it as a sort of thing to show to people saying, well, this is the sort of thing I could do. Yeah. Um, and then he said, who can play the main character and I said well Elizabeth Hurley must have her she must be in it she's just <laughs> sort of broken through because of that dress at four weddings mm. and a funeral so we're still in charge and two years ago I helped him went to America to help him on a TV show uh, called The Gong Show he played an English character mm. so I've never lost his friendship really yeah, and I've right. uh, uh, there are times when I've gone to stay in LA for a period I went. I went for a month once, and I and I thought, oh, no, I'm, I like I like to be where I am, mm. uh, and I had other ties here as well. So it wasn't sort of. Uh, I don't feel I've missed anything out because we're still yeah. friends, really, and that's um, yeah, that's, that's it. But what you know, yeah, I can say that his brother hilariously will always t tell him that my his favourite show of Mike's was Malarkey and Myers. Hilariously, with after all this time, <laughs> but it's that's you know that's what brothers do, isn't it? But it's. Um, None of that did I feel any aggravation, rather uh, the opposite, which is, wow, how lucky was I to learn so much from this man? Not yeah. least, he introduced me to improv theatre, which yeah. has become a mainstay of my life. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, no, it's just interesting to, you know, going back to those double acts and then with Mike and now with the Comedy Store players that, you know, you sound like such a, a happy and positive soul with good mental health hey, that does contrast i think with um i would say the majority of comedians that i know and that i've talked to on this podcast you know there there's a sense of a real kind of you know a happy soul and it's uh, i think a lot of that is because you have worked with people developing that you know huge sense of camaraderie is just so great and so important you know? well thank you i'd love to know about the, the stand-ups because i know t traditionally you know they're deemed to be uh have a darkness in the soul um, mm. and there is a, a sense that oh why do you have to be on stage and tell people about yourself <laughs> most mm. people wouldn't necessarily um, but I can't help but sort of look at the cards I've been dealt and think I've been fortunate uh, I have worked hard to to do lots of different things and when I changed course to do the stuff I do now it felt very good but I had to work very hard to do it and people don't always understand it but I just thought, I looked at myself and I said, I don't want to be um, as I was in my 20s, hoping for a beer commercial or a radio pilot um, and feeling that my skills weren't being used. And I looked, I, I literally looked at what can I do? And I, I like teaching. I like running my own little business and I like to use my brain. And I use those all in comedy, but I use those a lot now in my corporate practice. And I love learning about stuff. Every day there's something on Twitter where there's an interesting article about leadership, about psychology, about group behavior, 
And I just find that fascinating. And if I can pass that off as something I can put into my own work, then so much the better. I have to admit that, that we're all, um, let's, how can I put this, uh, yin and yang. So there is part of me that just wants to show off and do silly jokes. And uh, I'm not going to forget him. Um, so even when I do my workshops, he's fully there, fully present. And that's the unique combo I bring, which is there are people who are wonderful, as I've mentioned, various uh, experts in the field who've written books and give great keynotes and have true passion. But I bring a bit of funny as mm. well. And that's ultimately what we can all ask for, which is how can I be truly myself? And I am still trying to find out who he is. And there are moments when you think, oh, that's a shame. What? Why did I turn that down? Because that was produced by that person or working with that person. Well, it's because I was going on holiday or the other thing looked better. <laughs> you can say, oh, that was a shame or, oh, I did that pilot. That, that was just as good as that other thing. And they don't, they sort of, they stay with me for an hour and then I disappear. They, they disappear. I think mm. you'd be odd if you didn't have any of that. But um, I've, of, I've often wondered why I have this and if it might be annoying to others who don't. Um, but I'm the third of three boys. My mum says I was like this very early on. She said, you arrived a baby who said, all oh, right, these people know what they're doing. And that's always been my thing, really. Mm. Um, others see uh, different parts of me, of course they do. But uh, I'm fairly open to the idea that mental health, um, we don't know where it comes from. That's that's the thing. We just don't know where the physical, the chemical, the biological, or the psychological, how they interact. And I find that interesting, but I, I don't have the answers for mm. myself. Well, I think, I think certainly working as a team as you have, I think that's so important for, yeah. for mental health, yeah. but also I think diversifying at least in kind of the way you think, and you talk about divergent thinking, I think it's important to, you know, embrace all opportunities, you know, as you have done doing something, you know, complementary but different over the last twenty years. And what what you've been—I've seen some of your speeches that you've done, and uh, what you're doing, by the way, is wonderful in that arena as well, in the business arena. I mean, I worked in banking ten or fifteen years ago. I was um, I was actually talking about this on on a Times Radio discussion about that this week, where they had a um, a study which showed as a four year old we're laughing about three hundred times a day, and then as a forty year old we're laughing about two times a day, three times a day. And that sounds a lot for some of the people I used to mix with in banking. And we were looking into the various reasons for that. And I remember when we had people coming in sometimes to talk about different ways of working, it was always, there was always a lot of cynicism from the uh, community. But you, as you say, you do approach it with obviously a a background in professional comedy that I wish we'd have someone like you coming in, in terms of like, there'd have been a, a, a little bit more respect maybe for, for some of the things you were saying instantly rather than like, who is this guy? Why is he, why is he <laughs> telling me to think differently? But it's absolutely essential that the mental health in these businesses, as I was talking about on the radio, is just through the floor, the bullying, the toxic environment, the way people talk to each other, 
the way you talk about that people don't listen to each other and the skills we can learn from improvising, I think it's absolutely crucial that uh, you and people like you are, you know, are talking to businesses and particularly at this time in a, in a mental health crisis. I think it's great. Well, thank you. Um, sometimes at the moment, I'm just doing a fun hour, a team build where mm. we get to laugh and one group hadn't even seen each other because they had all their video calls on audio. Um, and so I often come away from any of my workshops saying, if I've made them laugh together, I've done my job. And people will say that. We just don't seem to laugh with each other enough. Yeah. And it's... Yeah. Um, well, it's seen, as a, it's seen as a weakness sometimes in business that you're, you're not concentrating on your work if you yeah. laugh. But it's uh, and, what I'm uh, the radio. It's such a false environment in many, many companies. A lot of companies are different, particularly in the third sector. But a lot of companies, certainly the ones I worked with, it's just, there's a, there, there is a yeah. false environment. Was, no were you discussing there. this book from Stanford called Humor, seriously? Because that's just come out. But it says humor is a vital part yeah. of human en endeavor um and i want to have a laughter audit i know we're all ten thousand steps five fruit and veg a day does anyone <laughs> count how much we laughed because there are so many things and they're on the stairs on the way down at the comedy store that yeah. show why laughing is good for you it's good for your lungs it's good physically it's good for your mental health and it's good for a team's creativity and cognitive skills Mm. It's not frivolous. It's not pointless. So this book is called Humor Seriously from two Stanford um, professors, one of whom is an academic, one of whom is a practicing improvising comedian. Uh, there's just so much evidence to show that we need to laugh together. And it's not a nice to have. If you aren't laughing, it's not good. And I know there is lots of laughter in organizations, but it's behind people's cheeks. What's the word? Behind your hand or around the corner. <laughs> yeah. They're laughing at the boss. They're laughing at the new... SAP system. They're laughing at the new um, layout of the office. They're laughing that we'll never get these numbers or whatever. There's so much where uh, we need laughter. And in many ways, I say to any leader, you don't have to be a comedian, but make sure there's laughter in your team. Yeah. You, and you can show that. You can model it by laughing, by showing that you've made a mistake. You are vulnerable by allowing the funny person to be funny but actually not that funny one who isn't really funny that man who tells jokes all the time at the expense of others that's not humor that's bullying but that thing where we can all say oh we made a mess here or that time when we all fell over or whatever something went amiss or surprising or look oh there's a window cleaner or these biscuits are a bit moldy just very simple things improvise humor not, not where there's a victim but it's just we're, we're sharing our yeah. common humanity our common vulnerability um and it's really important, actually. And I, I feel I've done my job if they've laughed together. Mm. And my favourite thing, of course, is when I'm not the funny one, but that person has been, that person who's a bit quiet or that person who's new or that fellow who feels undervalued. And they've yeah. been the funny. And in improv, they can be the funny. Mm. And that's the generosity of improv is if I, I can do it with somebody who's never done it before and together we co-create something joyous. And yeah. then people tell me afterwards, you know, that, that, we were still remember that scene with you and um, Anna and you were chicken farmers or something. And she was so funny. And I love that. That's, that makes my life worth living. That, you know, that, then that, that makes me think, good, I'm glad I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, and right now we do need more laughter. And that's, I'm trying to make my Zoom calls as, as funny as possible. But also, I know, I think we should, we've got a responsibility, all of us, to just say hello to people in shops give them a bit of, bit of eye contact above our mask and, and, and get a smile going Absolutely, uh, yeah. because it's yeah. just so much better for your mental health and physical health. Yeah. And yeah. As I say, I mean, what, what you're doing with 
with businesses, yeah, particularly and teams is uh, is so crucial. I mean, do you ever you're obviously improving them on the day? Do you ever go back? Kind of, do they ever rebook you? And do you ever check back in with them to see whether the things you passed on to them have been uh, utilized going forward? I try to, and often I will be engaged for another one, a sort of follow up. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I'm more in the thing of here's a fun team build away from stuff and Neil's going to do it. And then yeah. I surprise them by having something more serious, reflective and longer term. So it's sometimes it's anecdotal. I always encourage them to come months later to come and see us at the comedy store. And they'll say, oh, great. I can see now why you said that yes and was so life enhancing. Yes and is the ethos of improv. Yes oh. and rather than yes but. And so I do get check-in. Uh, sometimes it's anecdotal. Sometimes it's an individual. Sometimes it's somebody's moved on and said, I want you to do for my team now for what you did for that team then yeah. uh, obviously I would love everybody to do an improv course as part of life just yeah. as mu- as well as they do a thing about how to do an excel spreadsheet or something uh, we should improv should be part of what we learn at school certainly at business school as well how do I navigate the uncertainties in life how do I navigate the diversity of human experience how do I value the contribution from her and from him even though they might be different from me and they say things i didn't expect oh great that diversity is creative it's not a problem it's a, it's a solution an emerging solution that we can co-create something together rather than think well i'll leave him out she's not like me something where we can combine our difference to create something beautiful rather than feel the difference is destructive yeah no, absolutely. Absolutely. God, yeah. If we could do improvisation courses in business and at school, it would be uh, it would be yeah. life changing. I really do believe that. That's not to say that uh, we shouldn't plan things as well. This is what I tell people. You know, we the comedy store players, we know who's going to be on stage. We start at 730. We finish at 930. There's plenty of structure. But within that, you can play. Yeah, that's, that's the great combo. Yeah. The other joy of theatre, and I've heard you talk about this as well, about Dr. Theatre, about going on stage. And this is the same with stand-up or improvisation, that if anything is going on in your mind before you go on, you quickly forget about that. You instantly forget about it. Even, it's the, even if it's the very worst thing I've found, um, you just don't, you can't think about it for those 20 minutes or that two hours or whatever it is. Do you ever go through periods, uh, as a stand-up does, of being kind of ever low on confidence, low on feeling funny, low on wanting to get on with the people that you're around? Or does that never happen in that world? Uh, You come away thinking, oh, that show wasn't quite as good as it could have been. Mm. But luckily, there's another one coming on Sunday. Yeah, You will think, oh, that's a shame. I I didn't do particularly well tonight. Mm. But I come away thinking, well, it's okay, because next week... I will and last week I was fine so you have moments definitely and there, I, I would say also there are times on a Sunday evening I think oh, can I just watch telly like <laughs> <laughs> and then I go in I go, oh, oh dear and then vumph yeah the joy the joy yeah. is something wonderful that um you are making people smile we're laughing all the time we're giggling at each other we haven't heard the material before so there's yeah. so much that's positive of that vibe but it would be foolish for me to say it's all lovey lovey you sound you sound like yeah i mean right from a child you, you know the way you were talking it's not it's not just improvisation that has you know worked well for your mental health but it sounds like right from a child you were you were sorted from that uh, perspective which is as you say you don't know where this comes from nature nurture <laughs> probably a lot of both you clearly had a good childhood and university years and it's um 
you know, it's been lucky, but you've also worked on it as well. Yeah, I, I would say, by the way, improv performers will feel the, as much uh, as a stand-up performers in terms of validation come off thinking did i do okay because it yeah. we only do four hours a week oh, what about the other seven days there's yeah. there's lots to there and of course people are doing different things theater and radio and tv and they will have pressures there and i don't know what the others are thinking uh it's funny sometimes people say oh, wasn't that good tonight you say well you were fantastic mm. jim sweeney was always brilliant he sometimes well sorry guys it wasn't that good what no what are you talking about and it may be just one moment where there was a duff note should we say and that that seems bigger it looms larger than than it should mm. um so don't improv performers uh are not all as easygoing as me dare i say <laughs> yeah if you ask them they'll say that i'm a grumpy old sod <laughs> um i don't say much in the dressing beforehand i don't say much afterwards so i appear very self-contained and right. that probably sometimes comes across as uh, aloof and my face sometimes i know um <laughs> Uh, there is a, a phrase, isn't there? Resting something face, <laughs> resting bee face. And I have one of those. And Mike Myers used to get cross at me. We've just done a great show, Neil. Why aren't you more happy? Well, I am. Well, you're not showing it. And so... Um, I get that I get that all the time. All the I time. get that all the time. When I was a little boy, there'd be strangers come up to me and say, it might never happen. Cheer up. Well, it just did happen. Because <laughs> uh, it was sunny. My I was a bit frowny. So I have a certain resting face that will people will think I'm judging them i'm angry with them and so uh i've often wondered are they right maybe i am i don't mm. know um i didn't think i was but that if that's the reaction they've had then that must be there's some sense it's true so so i don't don't go away that i'm all happy in the dalai lama because i'm not <laughs> no i'm as i'm as, I'm as short-tempered and unpleasant as as anybody can come can be but i it's sort of uh it's short-lived there are times when you think oh dear that was a mistake or why didn't i do better on that or yeah how can we solve this issue and of course when you're a parent you don't have much control over lots of things yeah. <laughs> you can't sort it out for your child always and if you do you might be storing up a problem for later so so yeah. uh it's it's all learning um but i just notice that uh i can put those things in the draw marked experience rather than the draw marked disaster yeah no i i get that uh quite a lot from from friends saying are you are you happy you don't look happy you've just stormed the show or whatever <laughs> you don't look happy at all or just in general life you don't look happy so i feel you on that but it's it does it ever make you question kind of well i'll ask the question like are you happy are you happy now are you happy with you know how life has gone are you happy looking into the future because i when people say that to me are you happy it's like well um it's a difficult question um but yes i think i am i definitely am i've got kids and uh i'm happy with my uh, with that kind of side of my life i'm happy with my professional life but um are you happy neil that's the question <laughs> well i always answer that question by saying i'm content yeah. I think happy is a short-term thing. I'm happy when I watch Seinfeld or Frasier. I'm happy when I have a delicious meal. I'm yeah. happy when I see somebody smiling at me. Um, could things be better? Yeah. I've got to an age, and I'm an age past that age where you get happier, apparently. <laughs> Do you know this? Have you seen those those uh, charts? That at some point after 50, you just things become happier. Maybe you've stopped 
trying so hard or perhaps yeah. you feel more comfortable in your skin or i don't know perhaps there's a sense of a little bit of security because you've got some savings in the bank i don't know many of 50 year olds don't but there's uh i'm generally happy but i call it content which yeah. is the all the things that have happened to me have led me to where i am now mm. would i rewrite some of them yeah but if i if that hadn't happened would i be where i'm now uh i'm i'm fortunate in that i'm doing a job i enjoy i'm fortunate that job pays me to have smoked salmon and get taxes mm. um i'm fortunate in that a wonderful woman agreed to marry me and we have two children yeah. every day those children bring unhappiness and happiness because <laughs> <laughs> i feel their pain sometimes and they might they might be rude to me and i think oh no i failed as a father or what did i do what why did i show my anger or something so I would say I'm content. Happy is a short-term thing. Yeah. Um, but also the research I've done on gratitude. Gratitude does lead to something we might call happiness. Um, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. There, there is um, the, what's it called, hedonic gap, <laughs> which is uh, in our incredibly luxurious Western culture that many people have in our society. We have washing machines, dishwashers, cars, a roof over our head we're still thinking oh, i want a bigger car or whatever and i remember reading things like bangladesh was top of the happiness index um because they may not have as much material wealth as we do but there was something deeper and of course if you've got a washing machine you want a better washing machine you want a tumble dryer we, we quickly get used to our level of comfort and think if only i could have a bit more and at some point you have to say well is it worth it um do I want to be doing that? Do I have to play a certain game to get that? Hmm, I don't know. Uh, I still like to be paid for what I do, but at some point I, I know that uh, A, it's enough, and B, I'm giving a service that is a value to other people. Yeah. Um, I don't know, if you think, if I won the lottery, I don't know, would I feel happy? I don't think I would be, because I think well, I haven't really deserved that. No. Uh, but I'm very happy for example that keith palmer of the comedy school has just got an mbe things yes, like that make that. me happy when yeah, people right. i care about seem happy that's a good thing but it's of course it's a happy thing because i don't know what's going on there happy is a short-term quick thing Con contentment is deeper and to be to be valued and to be fought for and to be shared yeah no, i totally relate to the happiness versus contentment thing and particularly with regards to the, the job that we do i guess when you say you come off and come off stage sometimes and you've had a great show and you don't look particularly happy what you are is well what i feel is contentment contentment that i'm doing something that i want to do and you get those moments of happiness i think really from outside of the business as you say when you, when you were talking about being happy there you were talking about your wife you were talking about your family and i wouldn't I, when I'm thinking about pure happiness, I'm thinking about my family, my loved ones, um, the things that I've done probably outside of the business. However successful or unsuccessful it is, it's contentment or lack of contentment that I relate to with my professional work. Well, I'd say I, I'm very happy on stage when it's going well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. On yeah, stage, it's happy. That's yeah. great. It's, it's happy, yeah. Uh, so I'm... I'm going to say that I, I will have plenty of moments of happiness on stage and yeah. I'd, I'd be very sad for example if the comedy store players uh couldn't continue after this pandemic because of the you know enormous changes that have taken place so I'd be unhappy 
But I remember all the happiness, the, the happy moments we have shared and we've yeah. shared with the audience. So definitely I have happiness on stage. I have happiness off stage. Uh, contentment through the chosen career I have uh, of all the bits of it. And so, um, you know, happiness feeds into contentment, let's say. <laughs> if there were no little nuggets of happiness, uh, I think contentment would be hard to achieve. <laughs> There's enough. Uh, when I, for example, I'm going to give you, I uh, give you an example. I sometimes help people write speeches and prepare for them. Mm. And one brilliant guy, very successful management consultant, he was working on this speech. He said there aren't enough, there aren't enough Easter eggs in there, <laughs> which is there weren't enough good bits in the speech. And you and you as a stand-up will understand which you know in your set, there's some really good bits and there's some so-so bits. And with a good audience, the so-so gets a laugh uh, and the great bits get a big laugh. <laughs> anyway, he said, I want some more Easter eggs. So we, we worked on making more bits that you look forward to doing. And we got there. He said, at the end, it's full of Easter eggs now. And I think my life has got lots of Easter eggs, but I don't want to be eating chocolate all the time. Um, <laughs> I feel happy because I've worked hard to do something, but I feel happy when somebody gives me a, a present or um it's a very easy win so i'm not going to decry the moments of mild tawdry not tawdry ephemeral happiness uh, <laughs> versus the deep contentment that could that's sort of on a different time scale yeah but in terms of outside of that in terms of professionally i guess as a final question is there anything you would like to do over the next hundred years of your <laughs> <laughs> of your professional career anything in terms of you'd like to do um, either in a fantasy world or in a realistic world? Well, um... I, I've been sort of writing a book about improv and its wider applications for the last 20 years. Yeah. And I've written lots of proposals and that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to finish that. I'm still not quite sure the tone of it because I could make it very, very cerebral with lots of stuff in it about data I've read from psychology and professors and stuff. Uh, so I'd quite like to write that. Um, I was also thinking, would I like to, for years, I fancied performing at Covent Garden at the Royal Opera House because it's such a beautiful theatre. I don't know if comedy would work there at all. I have no idea. Uh, I'd like the, to the, comedy, the comedy store players to be on stage again. Yeah. I'd like that. I also do this character, uh, L. Vaughan Spencer, a show called yeah. Don't Be Needy, Be Succeedy, which is Indeed. the yin to the yang of my real training work. <laughs> and I did his full length show last in 2014. I booked to do him on his 20th anniversary. October 2021. So that's my ambition, I think, for now. Great. Well, Neil, thank you so much for joining me today. It's uh, it's such a such a thrill to have you on. I've watched you a few times at the Comedy Store, and you are brilliant, both as an improvisational legend, in my eyes, at least, and in many other people's eyes. But as I said earlier, what you've done and what you continue to do in business is so important for people's mental health in the workplace. I think it's absolutely fantastic what you're doing and long may it continue thank you so much for joining me on psychomedy thank you so that was our show for today join us again next week for more psychomedy on apple Podcasts, spotify uk or wherever you get your podcasts if you liked it please give us a five-star review it helps other people to find us and only psychopaths leave three-star reviews psychomedy was written and presented by me nathan cassidy bsc in psychology and produced and edited by mike hansen ba english for pop people productions theme music by mike as well so that's psychomedy please subscribe right and listen back on all the great episodes so far they're listed in those video clips and more at psychomedy.co.uk. And if you'd like to support the podcast, please, for £5 a month and get loads of bonus uncut video content and more, please go to patreon.com slash Nathan Cassidy. Follow us on social media at Pod People UK, at Psychomedy Pod, at Nathan Cassidy. 
And uh, Neil Malarkey, thank you so much, Neil, again. Lots of love to you and see you again next week. Ball.